Everybody, we are, we're here. I'm not here alone. Lamb's here with me. Hi, everyone. Yeah, see, it's, it's true. <laughs> it's real. I'm not making it up. He's not my, you're not my snuffle up against. Well, unless you've somehow like figured out a way to cleverly mask your voice and then speak at the same time as you're speaking like some kind of Tibetan monk, but that's fine. In the era of deep fakes, anything is possible. That's true. Uh, so we are going to try to do this show again. This uh, technically... Technically, it's like the <laughs> the third revision. We we had a false step last year. We were gonna we actually called the episode and we're back, and then the world nuked itself for a year. So we're gonna try to do this again, and we're gonna we're gonna take it easy on ourselves. We're going to uh, gonna do two things. Number one, we're gonna start monthly and uh, go from there. And the second thing we're going to do so that we don't have to prep for the episodes, even though if you are miraculously somebody who actually used to listen to the show, which I don't imagine many people listening to this right now will be, but if you did, you know that Lamb and I are bound to go on tangents. So tangents are an active part of the show, but as the skeletal framework of the show and to kind of capitalize on the word random badassery, I have thousands and thousands of journals and notes in an application in front of me that has a very fancy random button. I'm going to push the random button and whatever comes up, I'm going to look for something that maybe we can use as a jumping place to talk for a little bit until that runs out and then push the button again. The whole point here being this is, these are starting places. The tangents will probably be the meat of the actual conversation. That's all I have to say before we start. Lamb, do you want to say anything to the possibility of, of the possible people out there who are from the old show or new mm, people or new meat. people? You say just mm, got, meat. Yeah. Well, you said meat and I, I've been kind of semi dieting lately. So meat is. Meat what is, is a semi diet? That's like, that's like a half-ass excuse not to diet. Well, no, no, I because the one thing, the one thing I don't want to add into my life is a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety because I have plenty of both. Yeah, I was going to so, say, I thought you thrived off that. No, I, no, I definitely don't. And it's having a physical effect on my body, which, mm-hmm. you know, in the last year we haven't spoken nearly as much, um, just because of how insane the world has been. Yep. Um, and because of my weird involvement in a lot of the stuff that's happening. So uh, you should um, clarify what you mean by that a little bit more, less ambiguously. <laughs> Oh, sure. Um, well, there's work- a lot of bad things that are happening that you're not involved in. That's true. I, well, I went from being, um, you know, working at the California state Senate during a pandemic to working at the city of San Jose during a pandemic. Um, and on top of that, like I, I'm also working with the, you know, I'm on the board of three different nonprofits. So all of those nonprofits are in some way related to those things, including one that specifically, um, was, was focusing on, on, um, assisting with the the asian racism stuff mm-hmm. so it's been a busy year and a half <laughs> yeah and because of that like my my, my body is, has done backflips um just because of the sheer amount of like crippling anxiety and stress that comes along with that and you know my stomach um was reminding me that um you know stress is a tremendous effect on my body so what i'm trying to do is 
go with a, a, a stress-free version of keto, um, mm-hmm. which is to try to focus a lot more on eating leafy greens and, and meat and stuff like that, um, to kind of simplify what I take in. And hopefully that kind of helps my body to regulate itself a little bit easier instead of throwing the random amount of things that I was throwing at my body on a daily basis, just because I felt like I didn't have time. Um, so that's, so that's where I am now is I, not only am I trying to be very specific about what I eat, but I'm also, um, um, timing things like circadian rhythms, you know, intermittent fasting. So I'm doing all of them at the same time, Mm -hmm. but I'm doing a slightly stress-free version of them in the sense that I'm, I'm trying to not be like so strict that it stresses me out. Right. Because that's the point, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> and, and like you said, we haven't, we haven't talked a ton over the last year, just because of everything. The times that we have talked, we haven't actually even talked about a lot of personal stuff. It's sure. been more like, you know, like check this video out. <laughs> type yeah, stuff. that's true. What you might not know about me, anybody that listens to my other podcast probably knows this far too much is the last year I've been forced to learn a terrible amount about anxiety and dealing with anxiety and with sleep. So mm. I can offer a ton of advice. I don't know if you want to hear any of it now, but I can give you a lot of things to do to help de-stress your life in simple ways and not the stereotypical shit that you get. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's, I, I feel like the, the advice in and of itself kind of stresses me out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been, I've been kind of deconstructing a piece at a time, you know, adding things back into my life, like creativity and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it's been a, a, basically a reset button, um, and then slowly adding things in that don't create more work. You know what I mean? Um, that's why even when we were talking about redoing this podcast, like I, I had to be very specific with you about like how often we did it, how long the duration was just because I didn't want, not, not that I don't care about doing a great job with the podcast nor you know or or the fact that we we talk about something that's useful or interesting but what i didn't want to add is yet another you know uh, type of stressor into my life that forced me into a, a a an anxietal state um so you know and and that's part of the reason why um you know i i i was so stringent about certain things when it came to to getting even back into this world again you know and that's that's why the the random thing is so important to me because uh, while before when we, when this was like the main show or when I didn't really have my other stuff, like really in the pocket yet, mm-hmm. I had time to do prep. I don't have time to do prep for this because I'm putting excessive amount of work into my weekly show. Like my weekly solo show is two mm-hmm. hours now. Oh, I do two really? hours every week. And then I do an hour or about every Saturday for patrons. So how? How often are you doing that, that, that episode, you sent me an episode where you're doing music studies. Like how often oh, are you doing That's the first that? time I've done that. And I'm, I'm actually considering making that into a public show. Um, oh, I really, I, I really like that one, man. I might do that as I might make college dropout radio, uh, a Spotify exclusive. Cause then I can use the Spotify catalog with, without having to worry about copyrights. That one well, I did for patrons because I could get away with using the music. I also think it'd be a great idea. You know, that blend thing we did, <laughs> I think it'd be a great idea for you to, to do blends with other people, myself included, and talk through the stuff that ends up on that playlist. Yeah. I was thinking about that actually today when I was coming back from walking the dog, I was thinking about how it would be fun if I did the college dropout radio to also every once in a while have a guest and go through 
like a playlist. I didn't think about the blends thing though. That's a great addition to it. Well, not only that, but you, you know, plenty of like weirdly successful college dropouts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I call it college dropout radio number one, cause I was a college dropout, but also because it's to me, the format of that show is college radio. Sure. You know, because the, it might be, it might not even be applicable metaphor anymore because I don't know anything about modern college radio, but when we were, when we were younger and all the way up until I'd say our thirties, college radio was a distinct force, right? Mm -hmm. And sure. it was the place where you could play whatever song you wanted off of whatever album you wanted. You can't mm -hmm. do that on normal radio. Well, not only that, but the, the, uh, there's a significant number of, of bands and specific musical styles that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise, you know? Exactly. So that's, that's why I chose that name because it's like an homage to college radio, but I'm sure I didn't want to insinuate that I was a college graduate, uh, but the, I mean, the, I mean, it's funny because in listening to the episode and I don't know if you intended it to be this way, but, um, it, it, it made me think of the bands that I discovered, um, or groups even in some cases, cause they're not bands, um, that I discovered via college radio and, uh, um, the, whole different I went down a week's worth of rabbit hole, uh, because of that. So that's why I wanted with, with the, with the song choices, mm -hmm. I didn't want to do, you know, I, obviously I, I have nothing against playing a song that's well-known by a band that's well-known, but I also wanted to have the mix of all that, like band you've never heard of band sure. you've heard of, but song you've never heard from them, you know, like get all of that mix because it's so much more interesting when it's not predictable. Sure. Where everything kind of fits together, you know, obviously to be able to talk between them, there has to be some connective cord. That's actually where the hard work is, mm. is, is in the connective. But I found like doing the audio part was pretty easy because it, you know, if I had something to say, I did. And if I didn't, I just introduced the song. And that's the kind of cool thing about that format. It's so weird though. You know how, like we do this, we're going back and forth, like it's a, a little bit closer to this in the sense that like, I'm talking now you're listening. And then when you talk, I'm listening. But when I do the solo shows, there's like no stopping. Mm. And it's just, you know, I have to keep going. I have to keep my, my momentum. Yeah. That's weird. That's way harder. But doing the music is so weird because it's like I talk and then play a song and I get to just sit and listen to a song for like four minutes and then maybe talk for 30 seconds and then play another song. Huh. It's so different. It feels like that there's a lot of pressure on those little, the, the little times that you do talk though. Because I mean, I am, I am, I am slightly fascinated by that format though, because it kind of reminded me of Song Exploder a little bit. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Um, a, except you're not the person writing the song, but there's that, that sense of like analysis, but it's not necessarily just deconstructing the song itself, but it's how it makes you feel too on top of that, which is interesting. You know, just basically whatever's on my mind about the song, you know, yeah. I don't, I didn't, I didn't do any research. I didn't, that's one of the things like I, it was originally intended to be. And may, may end up still being a Patreon exclusive for, for my patrons, but my main focus is my main show. And that's yeah. where all, all the research, I didn't want to have, you know, you were just talking about not wanting to add a stressor on, and that's exactly what it reminded me of is like, you know, I got to be able to do this in a way that's not going to be tacking on responsibility that I can't upkeep. Sure. And, and also it brings me back to what I was saying about this show, like just even though we're going to go on tangents, like we have been for like the last 10 minutes, <laughs> having the, the notes here and being able to hit the random button, just that little bit to know that no matter what, if we hit a spot, 
I can pull something up that will send us sure. in a different direction, but not yeah. having to prep to do it. I mean, technically I've been doing years of prep for it because it's like almost 10 years of notes, but. But I mean, I could also argue that we've been doing basically prepping for this show kind of our whole lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly think like we could end up for like two or three episodes, just talking about the other versions of the show. I'm sure that wouldn't be interesting to anyone, but us. I think we but did I, that I'm a sure, lot in the past. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. We actually have done that. We deconstructed the, the, the starts and stops and the different formats and all that kind of stuff too, as well. I think that that would be this being just kind of a, more of a show just for you and I, and maybe hoping that people will enjoy it. Mm -hmm. If people ever enjoyed it and we decided one day to do a Patreon, that would be a fun thing to do. You know, like, um, I don't know if you ever listened to it, but I told you that the Garrett Wong and, uh, Duncan, what's his name? Robert Duncan McNeil, the two, two guys, Tom Paris and, uh, what's his name? I can't Harry remember. Kim. Harry Kim. Thank you. From Voyager. The two actors went through and rewatched the show. I think that that would be so interesting to do a series of you and I going back and listening to an old episode and then doing it like a director's commentary afterwards of the episode. Man, like an MST 3000 version, except it's us doing ourselves, man, that's so meta. <laughs> but, but not talking over it because that's fucking annoying. Sure. Uh, yeah, just, that. just like they do with the TV shows, like they go watch it and then they have a conversation. Sure. So, so we go listen to it and then have a conversation. That would be really interesting. So I'm, I'm saying that on the podcast so that I have a, a record of it. So that if I'm ever looking for ideas one day, it'll be there. Hey, by the way, the last one we recorded, where does that live? That's on my, on my show on it matters, okay. but it doesn't, I just put up that chunk, the, the, like the meat of the conversation. Okay. Got because it. you and I just went off on tangents <laughs> galore. Yeah. But like lamb and chat tangents, not like anybody publicly was interested in tangents. Mm -hmm. Because we got into, a whole, I noticed when I went and to edit it, I listened and I'm like, oh, there's a whole bunch of stuff we're saying here that nobody's going to understand because we're talking, it was like we were talking our own language mm, because sure. we were making references to things that we only know on a personal level. Mm. Where And that freaked me out. I'm like, oh no, do I have to, where am I going to find a chunk? And then I found like a 30 minute chunk and I'm like, okay. So that's, that's up on that show. I, th I think gotcha. it's, I think it's called chaotic neutral. Uh, because perfect. it was that part of the conversation, which was my favorite part. Yeah. 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 I actually have fond memories of that, that part of the conversation. Yeah. It made me want to play damn Dungeons and Dragons, even though I never have. <laughs> All right. Let's try, uh, let's try the random button. Let's see what happens. Okay. I have, I have one commitment I made to myself. No matter what comes up, I have to find a way to talk about it. Even if something personal comes up, I have to find a way to twist it <laughs> to you. If I don't want, you know, like, it's hard to explain everything that's in here. All right. So we're getting a daily log here. What do we by have? The, by, by the way, I also have two things I just want to talk to you about anyway. Okay. So uh, we'll just do a random spin on your brain after this one. Okay. <laughs> we'll just spin you on your head. So this one's interesting because my daily logs is just like a list of the stuff that the, the media that I intook on each day. Ironically, guess what the last thing on the list is? Not ironically, coincidentally, guess what the really? last thing on the list is? Star Trek Voyager. No. Oh, really? Oh, what are the chances? <laughs> I mean, you're a big nerd, so it's actually like a one in five chance that that's possible. Plus you have a thing about Voyager too. You know, I'm going to tell you, we'll talk about coincidence, weird coincidence. That's where I'll spin off from this. Um, I'll tell you a story. 
that I was, I'll probably retell this on my solo podcast too, but so my grandfather, uh, I think I've told you in the, in the past, my grandfather was hugely conservative person. I don't mean just politically. I mean, just like he was a very no bullshit kind of person. Like he was a, a gregarious, he wasn't a, a, a stiff person. He was very gregarious. See, like he would go to the grocery store for like three hours and just talk to strangers. He loved people. Huh. But he was very, he's not the person who is known for flights of fancy. But when he was a young man, he saw something in the sky that he could never explain. Mm. And his whole life, that's the only anomaly in his whole life, literally his whole life, everything else in his life was cut and dry, made sense, meat and potatoes. We're talking about a guy who used to ham, his idea of a ham sandwich was ham and bread. <laughs> no mustard, no mayo, just ham and bread. And he would drink a pot of coffee every day, like just straight laced in that sense. But he was a young man and he was out, he was out hunting in the San Jose foothills. He was a young man. So we're talking probably 1920s, 1930s, somewhere in there. It was just him and his uncle, I believe. And his uncle had a, a duck call. And uh, you know what those are, the little, like yeah, the, yeah. Those, those guys on Duck Dynasty made. So they had separated and he was going down this gulch. So it's like this, you know, dipped down, probably a dry creek bed of some sort. And he heard the duck call. So he got his gun and he looked up and he looked up cause he's expecting, you know, that usually that flushes the ducks out and he looks up and he said, he saw this metallic thing moving in the sky above him. I think he said it was like 30, 40 feet above him, like not far, far away. And he said it was the size of two football fields. Whoa. And it was moving very fast. He said it probably went past him in about 10 seconds. So for something that's like, oh, and completely silent and nothing in the world in the 1920s, actually there's nothing in, in the world now that's that size that's in the air. Yeah. So it blew his mind and he was like a young man. It blew his mind, like no idea what to do with it. And we're talking about a man who he had to stop going to school in the, after the sixth grade, because he had to go to work, you know, cause it was depression. Sure. So, so he worked in, in orchards and then he went into the army and he was, he was, I don't know if this is why he became obsessed. I think it's probably because he was only allowed the sixth grade education, but he became a book nerd. This is where yeah. I get it from. And he would read and read and read and read. And when he was in the army during world war II, he was a drill sergeant and he had a bunch of guys from the South who didn't know how to read. And he taught these guys how to read. So wow. very, very literate man, right? Mm -hmm. Not, not in the sense that he was literary, but he was literate. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you were to come to my house right now, there's these bookshelves that are still full of the books that he had. And it's like mostly history books, but then there's one section of one shelf. That's about nine or 10 books on UFOs. Wow. And he bought those because he was trying to make sense of what he saw and he could never jibe it with his perspective on the rest of life. He could never make that fit in because he was so straight laced. Right. So, sure. be, so because of that, he was always voraciously reading about UFOs it, as well as history. Like he used to read natural geographics cover to cover. He also used to read the newspaper every day, cover to cover. When he died, I was in the garage and there was this box of magazines. It was like Reader's Digest. He, he was, he loved Reader's Digest. This is back when Reader's Digest was like really quality. I don't know what it's like now, but back then it was like a quality magazine. 
And underneath, there was a stack of these magazines called Fate Magazines. And these are like paranormal magazines from the 60s. And there were 33 of them, right? And mm -hmm. they're extraordinary because they're like of the high, high period of like that UFO craze and all of that. And it's not just about UFOs. There's other stuff in there too, which there's stuff in there. I'm like, I can't believe my grandfather was reading about like witchcraft and stuff like that. <laughs> but, but anyways, I found these, these magazines and I was, they're still in great condition. So I, I brought them in the house and I'm, I put them on my bookshelf. I dusted them off and I started flipping through them a little bit. I perused through them over the years. And then I think it was three, four months ago, it struck me. I'm like, I wonder if they're still in business. Like is Fate Magazine still in business? You know what? Because I would love to continue that on for him. I know mm. you, I'm interested in those topics anyways, but I would love to continue that on for him. Like pick up his subscription. Subscribe to it again. So I looked it up. They do still exist. So I, I immediately, I went, okay, let's see. How do I subscribe? They're not doing super well. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think they used to put 12 issues out a year or something like that. You know, like a normal magazine, normal in air quotes. This is more like buy the magazine, pre-buy the magazine. And then when they're printed, we send them to you. Mm -hmm. um, so I bought it. I, you know, I said, whatever, I'll just buy an issue. And I, I, I guess I didn't read it that much, but when you get the new issue, they also send you a classic issue, which is no. super, super fucking awesome, right? Wow. So that came today. This is where I'm going with this whole story, but you needed all that backstory to understand this. I open it up today and I'm like, okay, here's the new issue. Oh, it's, it's kind of a different format. You can tell that it's, it, you know, it's like, it's stapled together. It's not bound like the other ones were like, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, they're still kind of struggling, but totally stoked to support them. And then I go, what's this underneath? Oh, it's the classic magazine. Wow. I didn't know I was going to get one of those. And I look at it and I go, huh, hopefully it's not one of the ones I already have, but you know, I only have like 33 of them, which is actually a lot, but they, they, they've been in publication since before the sixties. I think they went all the way back to the fifties. That's, that's a lot of magazines, right? Yeah. No kidding. So in reality, I have 33, they've probably put out, you know, probably close to 400 or something like that. Right. So the yeah. chances of me getting one that I already have slim. So I go over and I'm like, okay, the issue they send me is. Volume 27, issue two. So I go through and I'm like, okay, I'm going through the numbers. Guess what? The last book that I have of my grandfather's is volume 27, issue one. Whoa. So the book they sent me literally fits right at the end of the ones I have. It's literally Man. the next book. What are the chances? That's crazy. That's crazy coincidence. I mean, it's a, that's a one in 400 chance. That's, that's shocking actually. It's mine. I mean, there's only two, only two ways it would have been that mind blowing. If it had been one before the first one I have mm. or the one after the last one. Yep. Unbelievable. So we'll call that two in 400 chance uh -huh. or, or one in one in 200. And that's sure. even, I might even be underestimating the amount of issues they have by a lot. Yeah. That doesn't sound right. I expect that they have a lot more. Yeah. Cause if they did 12 a year. Yeah. The, yeah. That's a lot more, way more. It might be like two in a thousand or something like that. Well, that's 120 a decade. So, I mean, however many decades we're talking about here, they're probably up, up at about a thousand. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how cool is that though? I was like, <laughs> that's pretty rad, man. That's amazing. All right. Let's do a head spin on you. What's one of your topics? Um, I, I almost want to talk about them together. Okay. Um, because they're kind of related. Um, both things that we're vastly interested in and, uh, interesting versions of them coming out. Um, I've been 
I, I can't avoid it. I've been looking at um, people's early reviews of uh, Villeneuve's Dune, mm-hmm. and they're incredibly good. Like everyone's like, this is groundbreaking cinema. Um, it's amazing storytelling. This is sci-fi, how sci-fi is supposed to be done. Um, it's both a very intimate story as well as a gigantic world. And so I've been reading nothing but great things. And I usually don't like to do that because I don't like to set an expectation, but I have such a, a like innate love for Dune, um, that I was really, I, I, I couldn't avoid it, you know? And then the second thing is obviously the, the, the previews that, that I've seen for the foundation and how amazing that looks too as well. So I'm like really excited for both of those things. And I haven't really been that excited for any like actual creation that's come out of the, the media world in quite some time. So I wanted to, to get your thoughts on either or both of those. I don't remember the order. I might get this backwards. One of them wrote the other one in response. Uh, I believe foundation was written in response to Dune. Yes, that is true. Uh, because the, the, that, uh, Dune, Villeneuve's Dune has been worked on for God, a long time. I can't, I don't, no, I don't mean the movies. I mean the books. Oh, the originals. I believe Asimov read Frank Herbert's Dune and was like, nah, that's not how I would do it. And I might have it backwards. It might've been Herbert doing that to Asimov, but I feel like it was Asimov. That's why the foundation is about, it's not about a person. It's the weird. Have you, have you ever read the foundation? Any of the three books? Many, 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 many years ago, probably like 15 years. I've only read the first one of the, of the, the proper foundation trilogy, not including the prequel and, and all of that and the, and the subsequent, uh, they're not sequels, but the subsequent trilogy after that. Sure. That's the weirdest sci-fi book probably ever written because there's yeah. no main character. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, like I, I liked it, but I don't know if I, I don't think it's as good as the books that, you know, the, the trio of books that I loaned you in that one, it's in that one volume. Mm-hmm. the robot series. I yeah. don't think it's as good as the robot series. I think the robot series is far superior. Well, I think they're different though. I mean, the robot series, well, no, they're not though. Well, they're because the same they, world. The, <laughs> yeah. Well, cause the foundation is inherently philosophical in its nature. And I feel like the, the, the robots book is far more parable like, you know what I mean? It's telling shorter stories that define certain aspects. Well, I don't know. Sorry. I don't mean I robot. I mean, the okay. robot series, the robot series is a trilogy of books that he did. Robots of Dawn. You have, oh, this. oh, 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 yeah, robots yeah, yeah. of Dawn, caves of steel. And, uh, I always forget the other one. Robots of Dawn, caves of steel. And uh, I can't remember the third one, but there's three of them. Those yeah. books about, they're also known as the, um, Daniel Oliva books, even though he's in more than three. Uh-huh. I just, I think that the mystery aspect is far more interesting than bureaucracy yeah which is but, what the but, foundation is yeah but don't you don't you find like the, the one thing that fascinated me about the foundation and I, and maybe it's the time in which i read it um i remember weirdly distinctly the the era of my mind in which i read that and i was really thinking about cyclical things at the time mm-hmm. and and understanding the the core concepts within the foundation no it's um, brilliant it's just not it's in, yeah it's incredible like it's i felt like interesting <laughs> Yeah. Well, I felt like, I felt like it's, it, yeah. And I guess that's a good way of putting it. Like, you know, we, even, even if, you know, crime drama or, 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 crime, or true crime stories are brilliantly written, if you're not interested in true crime, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, well, it's, it's just, 
It's, it's something I need to reread. I just read it last year. Mm. It's hard to connect with because it lacks the intimacy of a character. You get True. little characters, but then they're gone. So you can't really, I've, I've, I'm curious to see what they're going to do as a TV show, because I'm curious to see if they're going to stretch it out more. They don't need to, considering that the, the Asimov universe is all one story. Mm -hmm. So you could literally take all of his stories and make that into his, make that the TV show. Well, I mean, according to the, the trailers I've seen, um, and a few of the clips that have been, been dropped here and there, it definitely does focus around the main character. That's kind of discovering psychohistory new. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're, they're um, actually so, so, including some of the prequels. Yeah. Them. They're, yeah. They're including a narrator, a narrator in there just to make the whole story make sense. Cause otherwise you're right. It's just a giant philosophical mess. Well, yeah, if you didn't include a narrator, it would be so abstract because in yeah. the book, you're every book has a narrator, you know, there's always somebody guiding you, even sure. if it's an omniscient, you know, omniscient, invisible narrator. There's still someone moving you through the story and describing things to you. But if you're just well, looking at things and hearing conversations, you don't know why they matter. Well, I think that's part of the reason why the foundation appealed to me at the time in which it did. Um, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, I was kind of an arrogant prick during that. Who the hell isn't at that age, right? Like in their like eight, late 18 years, like when I'm wearing my, you know, 22 old steel toe docks and my, my, you know, three quarter like peacoat and pretending like I'm, I'm a beatnik or something like that. I remember reading it and, and reveling in the abstractness of it in the sense that I liked the idea of me becoming the narrator for the story, mm -hmm. you know? And so, yeah, so I you feel created like, a character. I, I feel like I created my own character and I became part of the universe that way. Now you take it on the other end and look at Dune in comparison. Have you ever read any of the books after Dune? No, I didn't. I just read Dune itself. So you and I suffer from something I didn't know we suffer from. We suffer from Dune myopathy. What does the, what the hell does that even uh, mean? means that you and I have no idea what Dune's actually about. What? Because the first book is nothing. I just learned this recently. The, if you, I think it's six books. If you read the six books, Paul Moabdib is not a hero. Yeah. He starts a jihad that that like causes a massive war. He is and, and, the and villain. Billions of people die. <laughs> He's the villain. And the whole, the, the whole series of books is about abuse of power. Sure. But if you just watch Dune and just read Dune, it's a heroic story of a little boy becoming a hero. Sure. So you and I have myopathy in the sense that we don't know the rest of that story. So we actually have most people, it's not just you and I, but most people only know that book. We all have an incorrect perception of what it's about. Yeah, but do do I, I would also contend though that it, it holds to the old adage of one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter kind of thing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know? it, it, we can't really judge that until we read the other books. So. Yeah, that's true. We don't have enough context to make that decision one way or the other. So that's that's my plan this year is uh, to to read all the other ones. Sure, but even if you look at it from that context, like man, it, it's tough for me to. It's tough for me to accept that assertion without understanding the rest of the story, because even in the context of, of the original Dune book itself, and I know if we're talking about the, the Dune books and all of the, 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 the extra books on top of that, not all of them were written by Frank Herbert. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the ones I'm talking about are not the okay. ones, that, not, okay. not the ones his son wrote. These, okay. Got it. The, I can pull up the names of them in a second, but these are the ones that he, this is his original intention. This is his original arc. 
there was more to mm-hmm. go with it that his son went off of, but he finished the original arc from what I understand. Yeah. But I, I feel like, I, I still don't feel like that's, 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 I still can't fully accept that as an idea because even in the universe of Dune itself, you know, just thinking about, um, uh, the Atreides and, and, and how uh, it, it's hard for me to define it because I haven't read it in a while, but I mean, I still remember the story roughly. Um, there's a lot of political intrigue in there and there's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of the Atreides being, um, betrayed in a way by the empire or the emperor and the barons. Um, so, I mean, there's, I, I feel like there's no good guys or bad guys in the scope of that story. Uh, and maybe, I, and I, I mean, feel like, and I feel like the reaction from because from what I, I remember even reading in the bits and pieces, like I didn't read the other books, but you know, I did do some of uh, the research on, on what ended up ha- happening after. And there's that jihad that follows. Um, and although I don't, I, I think that, that Paul Atreides, Paul Atreides, is that, is that mm-hmm. Paul Madip, let's just, let's just call him by that name then. The Atreides um, is right. Yeah. The Atreides is, is his family name. Madib was the name that was given to him after the trials. Um, I still feel like he is a figurehead that can be perceived as a hero. Um, just to, whatever happens after that, it's like Jay Guevara being seen as a hero. You know what I mean? Right. So the books are Dune Messiah, mm-hmm. Children of Dune, God Emperor of Dune, and Heretics of Dune. I don't know what happens in the first two books after, so the, the first three books. But God Emperor of Dune takes place 3,000 years after Paul. Jeez. And Heretics of Dune takes place 10 times 10 centuries. And there's, then there's Chapter House Dune, which I don't know when it takes place. So it's a broader scope than we were aware of, at least. But from what I understand, Frank Herbert's whole point in setting up Paul the way he did was for it to be about... Again, I, from what I understand, he basically becomes like the thing that he destroyed. Yeah. So it's about power corrupting. And that's why I, I honestly, I think the reason that they're making this movie is because they're going to make more. Oh no, that's definitely already like, this is definitely one of two for just the first book. Yeah. They in, don't. In, in all of the things I've read and. and oh, they're for, making two of the first book. Yeah. They're making two of just the first book. Wow. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, this, this thing could end up being like 10 really solid movies. That's part of the reason why they picked such young actors is because Villeneuve had the intention of doing this for like a decade. Yeah, that's insane. I'm very curious to see that. I mean, I wanted to see it anyways, but I'm very curious. I need to read the books before they start spitting out the movies because I honestly, I didn't know that. That's why I never picked up the books because I was like, I don't want to know more of the story. I got the Mm. part of the story I liked. Sure. But apparently it's kind of like, uh, only reading one chapter of a book and thinking you understand the book. Sure. So, yeah. All right. Let's hit the random button again. Let's see what happens. Go. All right. What do we have here? Oh man. You want to watch an interesting documentary? This is fun. I watched this, uh, back in January. It's called Jasper mall. Mm -hmm. It's basically about the collapsing mall structure in America but it does it through the lens of one particular mall. And it's, it's just so interesting. It's like this little slice of life. You see these people that come to the mall every day to have lunch. Older people come to the mall to have lunch with each other. 
And throughout the movies, like some of them die. Uh, you see the guy who's running the back end of the store. You see a kid who gets a job um, as a janitor. You see another guy who's working as a janitor there the whole time. It's really fascinating, but I think it's only fascinating to people of our generation. Mm-hmm. Because we have a nostalgia for malls that other people don't have. Do you remember that that mix of Toto's Africa that sounded like it was playing in mall speakers? Oh, yeah. This taps into that same exact thing. Wow, dude, I haven't even thought of that. That's so random. What do you think it is about mall culture that it's rampant consumerism? And it always was. But what do you think it is about our generation that has a specific connection to mall culture? Well, Without being that, personal first, we'll go personal after. Well, I think, I think the, 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 you define it by the way you asked the question in the sense that it was about connectivity. It was about belonging, you know? Mm-hmm. And, it, and the social structures that we understood, um, and, and they still exist to, to some extent today. They just, they exist in different forms. Like, you know, like social media, I feel like kind of kills malls by their very nature, because the, the, the point of a mall wasn't about the shopping. I mean, sure it's rampant consumerism, but it was consumerism with a backdrop of social connection. Yeah. See, social media killed malls, killed arcades, yep. which sometimes those went hand in hand together. A lot of the stuff that used to happen through mail, mm-hmm. we have newsletters still, but actual newsletters that were sent through the mail, you had niche magazines that were huge, you know, because for example, you go and you watch any of the documentaries like King of Kong or anything like that, that's about uh, arcade culture. All of that revolved around magazines and checking scores and magazines and all of that and reading the letters in the magazines. And then once all that was taken away, they just kind of became less important. Yeah. I mean, I, I subscribed to GamePro and IGN. I remember those. Yeah. And those were like late comers. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong though. I think there's, there's a differentiation there too. Like you got to break them up. Um, like there's, there's different versions of game culture. Like, you know, there was competitive game culture, there was arcade game culture, and then there was like home game culture. And I think they were all inherently different. Right. Absolutely. When I think about mall culture, I think part of it too was there's a certain walled garden aspect to it that the mall was a place where parents could drop off kids. Remember, we're, we're looking at the end of the era of free roaming kids, mm-hmm. right? So they could still be free roaming kids, but you also knew they were in a place that was policed. Yeah. Had security enclosed. So there, yeah. there was a certain amount of safety. You know, obviously they weren't completely safe, but it wasn't the same as dropping them off on a street corner. Sure. So I think that that's probably why our generation also has a certain nostalgia to it too, because it was a place that we were allowed to go that for the most part, we were going to get in trouble for going there. Man, you know, what's funny is, uh, even just the sheer mention of this as a topic, like conjures up so many really specific memories for me. Me too. And that's the thing that's so, so strange to me about it. Like I can remember, you know, as much as like ideologically, I'd be like, okay, we'll give a shit about the mall or whatever, but like. It was such a huge part of my life at that age. Had, you know, yeah. that teenage, the young teenage era, not the later teens, you know, before you could drive era. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like where, where I was, we didn't even run into people we knew. I just went there with my friend, but it was like, 
we had our spots. You know, we get to the food court. We like to eat at this place. We don't like to eat at that place. And this place has the heavy metal magazine that we read for free on the shelf. And yeah. you just had like your little spots. Let's go buy Sam Goody and not buy anything. Yeah, I have. A, a, I, I, it brought up a name of a store that I hadn't thought about in probably 20 years. Remember the warehouse? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that place. <laughs> we didn't. I'm remembering Capitola Mall because that's where I lived at the time. We didn't mm -hmm. have warehouse in the mall. It was like a, an outside. Uh, yeah, we had Sam Goody in the mall. You know, they sure, all yeah, have their, had, their own contracts. Yeah, of course. We had, we had that too. <sighs> How about KB I, Toys? KB Toys, Tower Records. I mean, I worked at Tower Records for, for a brief stint. Yeah. And, and the taste, the very specific taste, which is Orange Julius, punked into my mind. Here's one for you. Miller's Outpost. Mailer's Outpost. I, I had a pair of Alps, which were the boots that were like the, the Doc Martin knockoffs. I totally had a pair of those. I loved, I actually liked them better than Docs. I still could, I wish they were still around because I'd rather have those boots than the Docs that I wear. I'm trying to think of um, all the stores that you could find in multiple places like Miller's Outpost, but weren't mm -hmm. like, you know, Sears or, you know, like the big, big, you know, the ones that they would put at the end. I'm yeah. Trying to think of all the ones in the middle, but that were common. You know, like the, like Miller's Outpost was one, um, what was the Pacific? It was like a surf. Oh, you guys might oh, have. I was in uh, Santa Cruz. So I don't know if you had it in San Jose. No, we definitely had those. Ugh, Pacific, Pacific Ocean? PacSun? PacSun. Yeah, PacSun. Yeah. And there was, I'm, I'm actually visualizing the map in my mind. That's the funny part. Wow, weird. You, you know, know it's the funny. It, it, and all that it, shit too. It's very strange that you mentioned that because. One of the most common locations that I have dreams is in malls. Oh, that's weird. And, and the more peculiar part of that is I have dreams with people who I never went to malls with and we're going through malls together. Interesting. You have to yeah. figure out what the symbolism of that is. I have no idea. There's got to be a period of my life where I was extraordinarily happy. So there's an emotional anchor for me in malls. Yeah. Did you trip out on uh, season three of Stranger Things since I mall did. Was, that was so central? Weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me too. I was like, oh, wow. Because the second season, I didn't feel, I, I liked the second season of the show, but it didn't feel nostalgic. Yeah. But the first season and the third season, super nostalgic for me. Definitely. All right. Let's hit random again. That was a good one. Dude, this is working out well. Born on the 4th of July. How about that? Have mm. you, have you read the book? I don't remember if I have. It, damn, I was hoping I had a quote here. There's a, a quote that I saved from the beginning of that book that kind of blew me back because I, I kind of expected, having seen the movie, I kind of just was expecting a run-of-the-mill memoir. And his writing was far better than I expected it to be. There's descriptions of battle. There's an anxiety that he captures in it that I don't think I had read before. Yeah. He's, he's actually, he was a very good, probably underrated author. I w I'm trying to actually pull it up right now to find that passage. I, I do. It, it's weird. It's one of the rare movies though, that I don't remember much in the way of the narrative detail of the actual story, but I remember specific characters like Tom Cruise and Gary Sinise mm -hmm. and, and their performances. And I still think it's one of Tom Cruise's best performances ever. I would agree. It wasn't him being a ham. Yeah, you wasn't going over the top, yeah. True. Mm, that's weird. I must have only read it in audio. I don't have it to pull up. So, yeah, I would I would say if you can find that book, 
It's, you can read it in one day. It's so okay. short. Even the book moves pretty fast too. You know, like a lot of times when you, when you pick up a book, you compare it to a movie, you're like, well, there's more in the book. There is more, but it's also truncated in a way. Like there's a brevity to it that makes it kind of brutal. Mm. I think probably the thing that stands out to me the most about the book is the way that you're literally watching a guy change, you know, because he, he was gung ho to go over there. Yeah. And you're watching him become like the complete opposite to something that's hated by people that he used to be. And, you know, it's epitomized in the movie with that scene where he pulls out the, pulls out the catheter mm -hmm. to his yeah, mother, yeah. you know? Ugh. You know, the, the, the strange thing is the correlation to, because I, I work with a couple of veterans groups and two of my best friends are veterans mm -hmm. and just to see like, and part of the reason why they're my best friends was we were able to connect via their treatment for PTSD and how acute their reaction is to what's happening in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. um, it led me down this rabbit hole of like actually having a real conversation with my parents for the first time. Um, I mean, they've told me stories about their escape from Vietnam and all that kind of stuff. But about two weeks ago, I sat down with my parents and I said, okay, tell me the long version of the story. Give me all the details. And that was a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Because it's still fresh in their mind, isn't it? Oh, it's never going to go away. Like they remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Those, those type of things define you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in many ways I can see why my parents are the way that they are now. You know, and, and it took me 40 years to have that conversation with them. Yeah, it's, it's like, remember I mentioned my grandfather earlier. One of, the, one of the things about him, like I said, he was a conservative man, but he was also, he was a Republican. Mm -hmm. And the reason he was, he chose to be politically conservative is because it was all about one defining issue to him. That he grew up during the depression mm. and he wanted to, he, his whole thing was, regardless of everything else he believed, he voted for the party that took the least money from him mm. because he worked so he used to work for pennies a week. And that's not like a metaphor, literally Jeez. pennies a week. So that was like a defining issue for him forever. It defined, yeah. it defined that choice for him forever because he remember what it was like to go and push prunes in crates all day and Jeez. to get paid like nothing, literally yeah, sure. the lowest monetary value that, that there is get paid that and that defined him forever. That's a, that's such a specific perspective. It's, it's the same thing for like, like, uh, Cubans, right? Their experience the, with Castro defines their political opinions forever. Sure. They, they just have certain things is no matter what they hate communists, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of my people are like that too, to be honest. Um, and, and, and they're anchored, uh, this is, it may sound dismissive of their experience, but, um, you know, for my people in particular, especially the ones that I've spoken to, and I've done a lot of that, that conversational outreach in the last like three months, there's a very clear trauma that defines a very particular part of who they are. And that, and a lot of the decisions revolving specifically around political stuff are trauma-based decisions. Right. There's no logic to them inherently. It's just certain things are just a no-go, period. I was just, uh, started reading, uh, Jaron Lanier's book, The Dawn of 
the dawn of the new everything or something. I'm getting one of the words wrong there. It's about virtual reality, but mm-hmm. it's also a memoir of his life. And he was, he is the child of two Jewish survivors of World War II. Mm. And how that painted everything of his childhood because of who it made them. And sure. his mother died when he was very young. And he said, we would still cry and, you know, light candles and so forth. He says, but we never, ever spoke of her. Mm. And they never spoke of her because that was the way. That's the way, So, according to him, that's the way so many Jews got over what they experienced in World War II was the only way to move on and choose life was not to talk about everything else, mm. to not use the words. Very I powerful. Wonder, I wonder though, if a modern sensibility would have different opinions about that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think because I legitimately, because the, the easy answer for anyone who hasn't experienced it is to, to say, no, of course you're supposed to talk about your trauma and blah, blah, blah. But like I, even with certain friends that I have, like there's a friend of mine who was special forces. He was in Afghanistan and he watched a bunch of his friends get killed, um, during a helicopter attack. He was literally picking up body parts and putting them in the helicopter because, you know, they, the, the doctrine is don't leave any, any person behind. Right. So he's literally picking up burning body parts that smelled like polyester and burnt hair. And he says that that's a smell that he will never, ever, ever forget. Yeah. My, my uncle was in Vietnam, in the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to this day, he still has nightmares. Yeah. Because yeah. he, and he was lucky. He wasn't, he wasn't infantry. He wasn't out in the actual jungle. Mm-hmm. He was in, I don't know if it, what the proper word was. It was a, kind of a bivouac. It wasn't really a, a fort, you know, but he was in a location, you know, so they were, they were in the encampment. That's where he was stationed in the encampment. Mm-hmm. It was in the jungle, but he wasn't out there actually fighting in the jungle. He was, but they were fighting every night yeah. because, uh, they were being encroached on every night and he, he, he doesn't talk about it very often. And to this, to this day, he won't watch movies about it. He's never seen platoon. He's never seen any of the movies about that war, any of them. I'm surprised he actually, he used to like watching Magnum PI because Magnum PI, even though it was like completely not realistic perspectives of what happened over there, touched on that a lot because Thomas Magnum was a Vietnam vet. Actually, all the guys on that show were Vietnam vets, but he talks about, he says, you know, like we would go to bed, he said, and then we'd be asleep for maybe an hour. And then the alarm would go off and we'd have to pick up our guns and go out and defend. And he said, I can't tell you the amount of times he says that a bullet went through the person standing next to me's head. Just that's, that's crazy. Insane to be, yeah. the, the thing about it is not to go through it. It's to live through it. Sure. Like yeah, and there's, a lot of, and there's a lot of that survivor's guilt too. Like I know with the friend that I'm speaking about specifically, you know, he, he, he wonders why he's the one that made it back. Of course. Um, and, and he has these moments, like, even though he gets a ton of therapy, he has a lot of support. He has a lot of support groups. He's a really smart guy. He knows he has to do the work and he's been doing it for a very long time, but there are still moments where even with him, he just gets quiet mm-hmm. and his wife and I are good friends. So we, we know in those moments that you just, you just let him, 
be. You know what I mean? You don't try to pull him out of it. You don't try to make him feel better. You have to just let him be in that moment because there's nothing that will pull him out of that, you know? And, and it's not that he's violent or destructive or anything. He just gets really quiet and just sits there by himself, you know? And there are times where that, that is 60 seconds and there are times where that's three days. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's really tough. Like I, I, I because in his particular line of work, um, so there's special forces and then there's a particular branch of special forces called pararescue. And those guys are the special forces guys that go in and rescue the other special forces guys. Jesus. Yeah. So it's a really particularly brutal job, um, within the, the SOCOM community. Um, they're known as like some of the bravest and craziest people in SOCOM. And so the, the things that, the things he's seen are just, I mean, he's only told me about a few of them, but even the things that he's told me, um, you know, just are mind boggling, like how a human can suffer that level of trauma and still be okay. And obviously he's not. Um, because he's still dealing with his stuff and he'll, he'll likely deal with it for the rest of his life. But I can't imagine how a person without resources, without support and without an apparatus to understand or navigate through that trauma could ever come out into society again. I just don't know how you digest the undigestible. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, they're just things you just can't, you just can't make sense of. That's why cognitive behavioral therapy is so fascinating to me. Because mm -hmm. it, it essentially it teaches you to accept the fact that you're not going to digest it. You know, that was my specialization when I was going through school, right? What? Psychology or cognitive behavioral psychology therapy? and specifically abnormal psychology and CBT. Yeah. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. And, and the reason why was to deal with my own trauma. <laughs> In the get out of my, get out of your head and into your life, mm -hmm. Stephen Hayes, which is like one of the, one of the big CBT books. Although there's some other stuff that's not in there, that's not CBT. Mm -hmm. One of the exercises in there is literally like to imagine your trauma as a physical object and taking it out of your body only number one, to be able to see it outside of yourself and then actually having to accept it and take it back in. Yeah. And that's intense. Well, to be able to take it in as a, so I actually did that exercise by the way, with a couple of specific traumas in my life, one of which was. And it's weird because now I can talk about it without feeling, without feeling any emotion towards it at all. But it was a specific instance in which I saw someone get shot right in front of my face and like their head exploded on my clothes. Um, and now I can speak about it objectively like that. I mean, it's such an awful thing, but it took two decades of work to be able to get to that point. You know what I mean? You know, what that reminds me of is something, I think this came up during a meditation or something like that. This isn't a trauma, at least not a comparable trauma, <laughs> but I was thinking about something from the past and you think about something from the past, that's maybe not a great memory in the sense that, uh, like I said, the, it's not a trauma, mm -hmm. but, but maybe you were an idiot <laughs> or you were a dumbass, or, you know, you're doing something, you're you said something stupid or embarrassing or doing whatever, something yeah. you regret. Um, sure. and it starts to feel uncomfortable remembering that. And I remember starting to feel that and then actively telling myself, wait a minute, you don't need to relive it. Just observe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, this doesn't mean it worked, but like having that thought like, oh my God, that's what I'm doing. Every time I remember I'm forcing myself to relive it instead of just looking at it. I'm not that person. Why am I trying to put myself in the situation and be that person again? 
Uh, it takes practice though, man. I bet. It takes a lot of practice and it takes, it takes a diligence like anything else. Like I'll, I'll tell you now, like with my experiences in particular, with this one in particular, I remember the distinct process that I went through in order to, to resolve it. You know what I mean? And it was a very specific process, um, that I kind of gave myself a game plan for. And it's the, I don't even know how to define the sequence in that it, 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 it also had a, a, a component where it diminished over time, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, so at first it was a deal with it once a week, then deal with it once a month and then deal with it once a year. And I'm, I'm, I'm currently at the once a year part of it, but it, it really does require you to build a very specific skill set and a certain set of muscles and more, more importantly, a certain mindset that you can kind of take a step back from. It's almost meditative in its quality, um, where you can objectively look at your life as an observer. And it's really, really hard to do that. It's very similar to something that they teach in mindfulness about the observing mind and the, I can't remember the other one. I want to call it the participating mind, but think, for example, when you, when you're having thoughts inside your own head, you're talking, mm -hmm. right? Who are you yeah. talking to? Who's the person you're talking to? Now, obviously the obvious answer is yourself, but it's a different version of yourself. It's a different self. Yeah, sure. And so the observing self is the one who's able to look at things and just see them for what they are. The mm -hmm. other one is the one that's in it. Yeah. And that, that's a very similar thing. And anytime I see similar ideas pop up in different disciplines, then I think that there's something there. The definition in, in my particular case, it's really similar, um, is, is being able to shake hands between your conscious and your subconscious. You know mm. what I mean? Um, your, your conscious reaction versus your unconscious reaction, um, and understanding the difference between those two things and, and navigating a way that, that because the, the subconscious has a tendency to store things without your knowledge. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and then having, having to, to actively engage the subconscious in your conscious life minimizes the possibility of compartmentalization. Um, and that's also a completely separate skill set. But the, the interesting thing about that is, especially over the last five years, because I feel like I've done a ton of work and of course you're never done with this work, right? Like you'll do this work until you die if you really care. Right. Um, you, I now am at a point where, because I feel like I, I have a good enough grasp of both of those concepts, the subconscious and conscious versions of myself, I can now intelligently compartmentalize. Yeah, you're, you're at maintenance phase. Yeah. I think that's what they yeah. refer to it as. Yeah. Maintenance yeah, phase. Yeah. Sure. You're not, you don't have to do the work anymore. You just have to keep it up. That's right. But it took a long freaking time to get there, man. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's a mindfulness that like, I can't describe like the diligence it takes to really, really do it well. Um, just because I feel like even though I've been working on it for the better part of a decade, I didn't get to a place where I felt a milestone had been reached until like earlier this year. You know what I mean? <laughs> and even the, in the scope of doing that, like I feel like I was forced into that milestone because of the circumstances I was in. And I don't know if I didn't have that kind of extreme catalyst that created a sense of urgency. I don't know if I would have gotten there that fast. Yeah. Well, I don't think we can go any deeper than that. Yeah. Holy crap. That, that's a big one. Jeez. And we're at, we're at about an hour. So. I mean, we, I, I still wanted to talk about Star Trek with you a little bit. Star Trek. Go for it. If you want. I got yeah, time. I've been, 
Yeah, I've been doing a deep dive back into the science of Star Trek again. I mean, sure, like I, we talk about the society stuff in Star Trek a lot, like the utopia, the the you know money not being the primary motivator anymore, and blah blah blah. But now I'm back into the science of it, like understanding how an impulse engine worked, uh, because it, it pissed me off that I didn't understand that. I like how you said that in the past tense. Yeah, I, sure. how it worked. <laughs> like to you, it's the past. I know it's so weird. It's weird to think of that concept, but just to see like, you know, and it, it, it goes back to the thing we've, I know we've discussed probably a billion times and I don't remember any of the instances where we, we talk about how transformative and inspirational Roddenberry's ideas about the world were, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But just to, to break down the, the actual tangible concepts, like almost all of the science in Star Trek had a basis in some kind of scientific theory, right. you know what I mean? And just understanding, like it, it, it annoyed me that all this time I've been watching Star Trek and, and analyzing all the stuff within the, the, the universe of Star Trek, I really never quite understood what the hell an impulse engine was. And so I, I did kind of a deep dive and I found this guy in England who's been working on an impulse engine. Well, that, um, you, 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 you teased that you have to at least give like a one paragraph explanation. Um, there's no exhaust. Um, so what most people think of as like the only reason why there's exhaust on Star Trek um, it, or glowing red lights is so that people have a reference point, not because it's actually any part of the science at all. Right. Um, and it's a manipulation of space time where it's, it's, so if you take a canoe um, and you sit in the canoe, if you sit in the front of the canoe, canoe will balance the weight out. And that's essentially the simplest version of the concept I can describe from an impulse engine is that it shifts space time. More specifically, it shifts gravity within a certain space in order for um, an object to equalize within that space, thus propelling it forward. Pretty good explanation. There we go. <laughs> I have a question for you though about the science. Yeah. Knowing what you know about the transporter, would you ever get in one? Hell no. Fuck no. Fuck that, dude. I don't <laughs> want, I, no, have you watched I, I any live. of, uh, I have you watched, have you watched any of Lower Ducks by the, by the way? No. Yeah, I, I would suggest checking out. I haven't seen anything new yet. Nothing um, new. Yeah, no way, dude. I don't want to be de-animized and then re-material somewhere else. I don't think, you, I don't think that counts as living. I think no, that the, it's the, not. The person that comes out the other side is a different person. Yes, fully. To to clarify to anybody listening that doesn't understand, the at the most basic level, what happens when somebody gets in a transporter is the molecules of their body are broken back apart. And on the other side, they're not reconstructed. Those molecules never go to the other place. Yep. They're the, new molecules. <laughs> the other place has like core elements and they reconstruct a new body over there. That's, that's the, the, like the, the buffer. I always thought the buffer was they were buffering the molecules, but they're not buffering the molecules. They're buffering the data. Yeah. Which is the data of how to piece the person back together. I, I, there's gotta be a margin of error. I, I, who cares about the margin of error? It's not me over there. You know, yeah. like I'm dead. You just killed me to, to, you know, like there's, that's the thing that's not explained about it either is like how apparently in Star Trek, there's no such thing as like consciousness, separate mm. consciousness, you know, like consciousness is just a biological function of your molecules in your brain being arranged in a specific way. Mm -hmm. So that if you replicated that exact brain, you would be the exact same person. That's, I mean, that's exactly what it's saying, right? There's no yeah, soul, sure. obviously. 
Well, that's, well, that's the assertion that they're forcing us to, to agree with. Sure. Yeah. That's and no, I, man, no way. I can't remember what it was. There was, I think it was a book or a short story. God, I wish I could remember it, but it was about replicator technology, but it was about exactly what we're talking about. Like the whole story is about how the, the person that's on the other side is a new person and something happens where, where someone gets, sticks around like the, the older version sticks around and it's this, it's, it's really, it's a super dark story. Dude, there's also an episode where there's two Rikers. You remember that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he was stuck in the buffer. Yeah. He was stuck in the buffer. Which honestly doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you really understand teleporter technology, that really doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, uh, based on the technology also doesn't make sense on why you would do anything with it because it's just data. So if you saw data stuck in a buffer, what would you do? You'd delete it. Yeah. It's not, it's not like matter is stuck in there. It's not a trans, it's not a matter transporter. Like, oh my God, like, his I mean, soul and, and, is caught in here. That's not what's yeah, going on. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing that people just don't ask questions about when it comes to the transporter, because the technology seems nifty yeah. is that you're literally being reconstructed. A version of you is being reconstructed yeah, you're being on a teleporter bed. You're essentially being high speed cloned. Yeah. Based on uh, and uh, killed. whatever amount. Yeah. Kill, yeah. First you're killed, which is you're essentially atomized and then you are reconstructed. Why, why would you atomize the original copy too? That's the other thing. No. Plus there has to be, there has to be some kind of. Because there can't like, be two. There has to be of, only of one, course, right? Of course. There's what was be, it? Highlander? There can only be one? There, there can only be one. But let's think about it from this perspective, right? Like, I mean, there has to be degradation. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like the number of times you do it, there has to be some form of degradation. Well, not necessarily because every time you're taking a new scan of the data, mm -hmm. you know, all they do, remember when they talk about like the, the health scans, how mm -hmm. when people come on, sometimes they're able to cure them of like a parasite or something like that, because they're comparing the data coming into the, the data that left. Yeah, sure. So they're literally just only changing the mild, but that's the thing about it is the boggling nature of the whole thing is like, what is the tech, how advanced is that technology that it's able to scan on such a molecular level that it can detect changes that have occurred in the body on a cellular level in five minutes or 10 yeah. minutes or an hour, right? Because the person that comes back has to be the person that left the planet, which is different than the person who left the spaceship. Sure. The, even so though now it's an within... hour, the, the experiences are different. Yeah. Well, not only that, but now you're talking in a span of like less than potentially less than like five minutes. There could have been three versions of you that have been killed and reconstructed. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's literally mass murder. Nah, man, I'm not okay with it. Nope. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the thing is with, that I enjoy, you know, I do it with true crime books and stuff like that too, but nitpicking things. This episode, I did my solo episode this week. I took this book and I just like nitpicked the logic out of this dude. I was like, well, you say this and then you say this. So basically you're saying both things, which one is it? Mm -hmm. And that's when I, I can't help it. When I watch things like Star Trek, I see things and I go, hmm, that doesn't make sense. Well, I think there's, there's a concept that I've been, and, and obviously this is not for Star Trek, but because for Star Trek, it's a suspension of disbelief, but yeah. there is, there is an aspect of society right now that I mean, it's always been true, but cognitive dissonance is fascinating to me. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. You have you, oh, we won't go down this rabbit hole. I'm just going to mention it for shock value. Have you heard of birds aren't real? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we talked about with Star Trek, going back to Star Trek, well, we talked about with Star Trek, like the, the way that they didn't, and they introduced the idea of the pads, mm-hmm. but they didn't really understand the implication of the sure. pad, you know, like having the different pads. No, you can have that all on one dude. And you don't have to hand him the pad because you can transfer information. You know, like how many things on that show on Next Generation could have been solved by the fact that people realized that data was an Android? Sure. So many times things happen, but like you have a machine right there. He's literally right there. <laughs> well, not, I mean, not only that, but I mean, and, and obviously there are certain leaps of imagination here that are, that are not even far enough leaps. You know, for example, like how tricorders are used, how the data pads are used. Like, I mean, with modern technologies, we understand it now, not only are those things possible, but there have been advancements beyond those things. Right. Even, you know what I mean? Why isn't everything in a cloud and why doesn't everyone have access to all the data all the time forever? You yeah. Know what I mean? And imagine if something as simple as if data had a Bluetooth connection to the ship's computer. Sure. He could be. Yeah. He could totally. be aware of everything happening in the ship at one time and be in a humanoid interface. Which, by the way, um, is the in the modern versions of Star Trek Online, because I'm that big of a nerd, um, the EMS programs have now become that. They don't still look like Picardo, do they? <laughs> no. I, they look like whoever you want them to. Like, oh, okay. they, they have personalities and all that kind of stuff too as well. They did, in Voyager, they did three versions? Mm-hmm. The originals were the ones that looked like Picardo. Yeah. And then who was the one after that? Uh, it was a younger person. It was like not a star, but then there was another, another version. Did they do a version that looked like Barkley? Yeah. I was going to say Lieutenant Barkley, but he was specifically, oh man, we're diving super nerd mode. I think he was the EMS that was on the Prometheus when they found the Prometheus. Maybe. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, and then they had to fight for control of this ship because they were both tapped into it. This isn't to answer now, but here's something for you to stew on, maybe for next time. What becomes an artist in Star Trek's future? Nobody watches movies. Nobody mm-hmm. watches TV. Nobody, the, the only books they seem to read are books written a long, long time ago. Sure. Uh, the only time they paint is when it seems like they're painting for arts and crafts but there's nobody actually presenting themselves as an artist. So question to think about till next time is the quote unquote utopia of Star Trek devoid of artists. Here's another interesting question for you based on the transporter question. How, is everyone in the Star Trek universe dead already? Okay. Well, if you guys want to find that out, <laughs> you're first going to have to hope that we remember. <laughs> Not likely, by the way. Not likely. We'll try. Not likely. No, try. That's a fun. That's a fun question to ponder, though. If you've ever taken a transporter, you're officially dead. No. And and almost every, I promise you, you're every answering the person, question, though. You're not supposed to answer the question. You, know, I understand that, but but if they're reproduced, <laughs> are they also officially alive? Like, did they die? Like, what's our definition of death? You know what I mean? Right. All right. Well, um, this is random <laughs> badassery. This is what we do. It's not that different than what we used to do. We just have a random button now, which I think the random button worked out pretty well, don't you? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Fantastic. Such couldn't have, Im- couldn't have imagined it working out better. Honestly, it took us down some very different avenues, malls, uh, born on the 4th of July. 
PTSD? Um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, whether or not transporters are basically murdering entire populations of people. Yeah. Fun Space stuff. time. The fun yeah, stuff. Know, little stuff. So uh, if you are one of the three people listening to this episode, <laughs> hopefully there'll be five of you next time. Yep. And then seven after that and so on and so forth. Let's go with primes for a while. Yes. Uh, my name is Chad Hall. I write my name online as C.A. Hall because there's too many jackasses named Chad in the world. Yeah, there are a lot of Chads. Yeah, that's why I'm trying to slowly transition. And I just have trouble saying my name is C.A. Hall. Mm. It sounds like a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, if you would like to check out my podcast, uh, my solo podcast, It Matters But It Doesn't, you can go to itmattersbutitdoesn't.com or you can type It Matters But It Doesn't into any podcast player and listen to it. It's similar to this, except it's me talking to myself. It's random in the sense that I cover a lot of different things. <laughs> and uh, it was actually birthed out of this show in a lot of ways. What I learned from doing this show originally is what became the way that I do things uh, as a solo podcaster. And sure. you can you can also check out my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall. Um, Lam, what would you like to plug? You can find me in most places at the vacant room. So the vacant room is all one word. I'm on Instagram there. Um, although I have switched my, uh, Twitter to Lam Nguyen comms, which is L A M N G U Y E N C O M M S. Um, where I occasionally have, I, I didn't even understand what subtweeting was until someone called me out for subtweeting. Um, and then I kind of researched the, the phenomenon of subtweeting, which is basically like giving ambiguous criticism on things without giving names, but obviously because I work in political spheres, I have to keep names out of it. Those are the kind of the two things I want to plug. Um, other than that, I'm just really happy to be doing this again. Like these are, these are topics I literally cannot talk about with anyone else. <laughs> That's what we're here for, to make ourselves feel good about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, does the random badassery Instagram still exist? Uh, no, no, definitely okay. not. No, you can make one if you want. Well, because I'm trying to figure out, do we still have that original name somewhere? What do you mean? Is it attached like, to does something? It ex does it like still exist? Oh like, no, if does it doesn't it exist, it got deleted. I don't let things float around. I delete them when I get rid of them. Well, because there's a part of me that like, uh, if we're going to do this, let's make it worthwhile unless you can get people to listen to this. Okay. You can be in charge of the Instagram because yeah, I don't I want anything to do with it. No, I told you. Yeah, no, I'm, d I'm down. I'm totally down. So, uh. You might be able to find, uh, at random badassery on Instagram sometime. Yeah. Stay tuned. I'll see if it still exists. And if it doesn't, I'm going to try to wrestle it back from the universe. I don't know if it's, uh, it'll be available by the time this comes out because I can edit this pretty fast. So mm, got it. But either way, you might have to use a different name anyway. So if you really want to find us on Instagram, I guess you'll have to listen to the next episode. Yeah. It's good. Good tease, right? Yeah. And also motivates both of us to do another episode sometime in the near future too. Yes. Uh, once again, we're going to try to do this monthly and, uh, that's it. I'm Chad and you are lamb. That's right. I have no idea why I said it that way. Bye motherfuckers. Bye.